There, there, there are good and bad things to, to where we're at now, right? Part of it is like, yes, there are ways of delivering your music that are far more direct than you could possibly have ever imagined. In theory, anyone in the world could hear your song as soon as you upload it. But how are they going to know it's there? Right? How are they going to know to listen to it? How are they going to find it? Like all of these things still need some kind of infrastructure, right? To drive people there. And it can be tough for artists to promote themselves, but I don't know, artists now have to, you know, be their own marketer, social media manager, TikTok person, like a hundred million other things and still try to balance that with art. And I just, I don't envy anyone in that position. That seems incredibly difficult. Welcome, everybody, to episode number 76 of Connection is Magic. Thank you so much for coming back and spending this time with us. Today's guest is Sean Sotero. He is a senior writer at Complex. He has written for The Atlantic, Vibe, GQ, Forbes, many more. He also is the author of Complex Presents Dummy Boy, Takashi 69, and the Nitrate Gangsta Bloods. He got into the whole Takashi 69 saga. He was going to court regularly during Takashi's trial. Go check out that book if you're interested in that story. Kind of a fascinating guy, Takashi 69 This episode, we get into what it's like for artists who have attained a record deal and then have to go through the trauma of it falling apart and bouncing back from that. We also get into burnout being so prevalent in today's modern culture and ways to protect ourselves against it. And we get into trusting that still small voice inside of us that somehow already knows the way and we all have access to it. Can't wait to have you guys check this one out. Here we go. Welcome, everybody. To Connection is Magic. I'm your host, Samson Shulman, a former music executive turned podcaster and coach. In a world obsessed with the highlight reel and keeping our difficulties hidden behind the curtain, we end up feeling lonely and isolated, and opportunities for human connection are missed. On this podcast, we dive deep with our guests and get them to share those dreaded, unfiltered pieces. We learn how to make lemonade out of life's lemons and realize adversity isn't sent to break us, but rather shape us into the greatest versions of ourselves. We appreciate you spending some time with us. Now let's begin our journey back home to connection. Thank you so much for joining us today, everybody. We got a very special guest, Sean Sotero in the house. Thank you so much for taking on the show. Thanks, Samson. Uh, I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me. I was doing a little research over the last few days on you. Uh, Uh Uh-oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They all say that for some reason. <laughs> but I noticed a lot about you, you know, you're very good at reporting on other artists and things like that. Even when you're being interviewed, you're a wealth of knowledge. But I wanted to find out a little bit more about the man Sean today. Being that this is a show about life transitions and kind of what shapes us, um, mm-hmm. let's just kick it back for a minute on just where you grew up and just how that influenced you and, and how it shaped you to be the man you are today. Sure. So I grew up in central New Jersey, near Princeton, um, in a little town. And inside that town, a little sort of planned community, one of these things that was all the rage in the 70s, right? The community was called Twin Rivers. I never was quite sure why. I don't think there were rivers that had anything to do with each other in there, but, but what can you do? The community was... L- disproportionately people who had grown up or were living in New York City or in, you know, 
one of in the outer boroughs specifically who then moved to suburban New Jersey to raise a family, right? I was older than I should have been, I think, before I realized the world wasn't like 60% Jewish, right? <laughs> because it was all like <laughs> this whole community with outer borough Brooklyn Jews, like among other people. It was a great place to grow up. It was close enough to New York City that, you know, my, my father growing up worked in Manhattan. And from the time I was in middle school, I would go in, you know, first with him and later with friends to soak up things in the city. Uh, Yeah, yeah, art and music and all kinds of stuff that I just, you know, a whole world that I never knew existed. You know, my initial ticket into that was like peeking in the village voice that somehow copies made their way to my local 7-Eleven down the street from my house and just seeing the world sort of expressed in that, just a whole other insight into art and politics and music and, and, you know, some of the people writing in there had an impact on me even before I, that I'm still figuring out to this day, right? Because this stuff hit me at such an influential time. Did you feel pretty supported by your parents to like explore and figure out what kind of sparked you? I definitely did. I would say I got started interested in music when I was pretty young, uh, started playing guitar when I was around 10. And, you know, my parents were always very supportive getting lessons and playing in bands with friends and, and ultimately going to uh, music school. You, you know. went to Berkeley, right? I went to Berkeley. Yeah. 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 So they were very, very supportive of that and of me playing in bands and having <laughs> terrible jobs for, for pretty much all of my twenties, you know, they, whatever they thought about it, you know, occasional things may have, may have seeped through in comments, but by and large, they were, they were supportive, which was great. But I, I want to go back to this. So when you were in the bands, let's bring it more sort of mm-hmm. into the, from the macro. Were you trying to get the record deal? Was it the quintessential thing, like struggling band trying to get the record deal? Post-college, I would say, sort of. You know, before that, it was, you know, doing stuff with friends or whatever. And it was never, there was hardly any places to play at all. So that was never really on the radar. Post-college, definitely playing in bands, trying to do sort of our version of making it. I was in Boston at that time. In one case, in the band that I played with for the last few years before I left Boston, like we did have... A record deal it wasn't a major, but it was like an independent label, and we did. Were you guys stoked um, when you got that? Yeah, it was. It was exciting, but it was like a gradual step up. You know, it wasn't like one day you're okay. a rock star, right? It was like, yeah. okay, we released one record through a friend of the band's who okay. had himself gotten a big record deal and thus had enough money to have like his own label. Yeah. Um, then the next thing was like a little more reputable, this label that was out in in Louisville that put out a bunch of bands that were sort of in the same indie rock vein that, you know, knew like, hey, we toured a lot and we're willing to work and they like the music. And so they put out, you know, they put out the album and all of a sudden there are a few print ads and a little more press, you know, it was sort of a gradual thing. It wasn't like, oh, okay, all of a sudden, like I imagined when I, when I was a kid. You know, transitions can be like unnerving. Am I right, Sean? Oh, absolutely. What's coming, and I think as human beings, we just need some type of security. We'll get into this, I suppose, but I had what is, you know, by most standards, a pretty late career transition, right, out of being a music performer into journalism in a a completely unexpected way, yeah. Let's talk about the emotions that were going on within you when you're like, the music thing is ending. How did you know it was ending? Was there some discussion? It was all pretty gradual. Right. 
in that I early on got involved in this website that became Rap Genius, later Genius. And I was one of the first people to just because I coincidentally happened to, you know, stumble on it early. I happened to see their very first piece of press, which was a tiny little mention on the back page of New York Magazine. And I reached out to the people who were running the site, which are, you know, a couple of college friends, quickly got involved. They happened to be in New York. So I met them and it was, but at this point, it was just like basically, you know, a few people on an email list working on this thing. Right. So I got involved in that and that was a hobby and who doesn't want their hobby to become a job, but it also seems impossible, right? Like, oh, you're going to pay me to do the thing I'm doing for fun. You know, sure. Yeah. I'd also like to win the lottery. Right. So the idea of it actually becoming a job didn't cross my mind beyond sort of a daydream for the for the first couple of years. While I'm getting involved in this website, I'm also teaching music more and moving away from gigging. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just sort of more dependable. I got a teaching gig that was a little bit outside New York City. So it became more difficult to like do that commute and get gigs at night. And sort of once sure. you start turning stuff down, people don't ask twice, right? So the the gigging and performing stuff was fading out. And then the site suddenly gets more successful. They're able to hire me part-time to do stuff. By the time it becomes full-time, people I was playing with were just like the core people I'd been performing with for a long time. Over a number of years, that eventually got too busy in this journalism world to really keep that going. And I'd also, to an extent, burnt out on it. It was all pretty gradual. Obviously, at a certain point, I realized, I guess this is the thing now. But in some ways, the whole genius situation was such a roller coaster ride. It was all quick and sudden. And this is a job now. Like, what are you talking about? That it was only really after that ride ended mm-hmm. that I really had a conscious decision of like, okay, well, you know what? I've made all these connections. I've done all these things. I've built up this little resume. Yeah. I guess I'll keep going with this. It wasn't until after the sort of genius roller coaster was over that it was like, okay, I guess this is my job now. So you literally landed on a path of journalism by happenstance, by happening to see this little blurb about early rap genius. Right. And and I was well prepared in that in high school and college, I had done some journalism and some music writing. Is there a chance you think you would have ended up on this journalist path regardless of if you landed at genius in the early days? Perhaps, you know, it's it's impossible to say. Can't like live a counterfactual, right? But yeah. it's certainly possible. And I remember like post-college, I definitely was interviewing at newspapers and contemplating that route. And it just, it didn't happen for whatever combination of reasons. It's not impossible, but it also was a pretty strange thing to do, you know? Yeah. I just think it's fun how some of these pieces in hindsight kind of look back and you're like, oh, this kind of got me here and that got me there. Like the story of Steve Jobs, you know, dropping out of college, but taking the calligraphy course, you know, which Mm -hmm. helped shape the beautiful type for computers and whatnot. Definitely. It's, it's, you know, I've I've thought a lot about what role sort of chance plays and and what role preparation or being suited to something plays. And I I don't think you can really untangle those. It's some kind of marriage between the two. Right. I mean, what I'll, what I'll say is like, yes, I happened to see that blurb about rap genius in, you know, their early press. At the same time, I was already obsessed with the idea of rap lyrics containing essentially what I thought of as hyperlinks in terms of references to 
mm. other songs or references and things in culture or the samples be calling back to the, the significance of earlier songs well, so and was, you know, was going so far as to, you know, type out lyrics to albums and annotate them, you know, not a ton, but once or twice, right? If mm-hmm. I, if uh, my, my now wife, I really love this record, I need you to get it. And so at one of my terrible day jobs, you know, I spent hours like typing out the lyrics and like putting in little footnotes for stuff. Then that all of a sudden became my job. I can't help but think that there was some kind of, I mean, that was the reason I reacted so hard, uh, so, so passionately. Yeah. to the site when I first saw it. It was like someone took my brain and put it on the internet. That's that's well said. What was the first song, by the way, that, you know, back in the day that you actually annotated? I'm just curious. Oh my, yeah. my goodness. I would, I would have to go through, you know, emails and emails and, you know, old Hotmail accounts and stuff to find that out. I don't, probably something by Jay-Z would be my first guess, but I, I don't. I, well, I can't let, say with any certainty. Let's have you answer this then. Just I'm curious. Um, where did you first get super into hip hop? I think is a fair question. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a gradation process, right? I, I feel like I was always aware of it. I'm I'm of the age where um, when I was a kid was sort of the this explosion of rap music and and hip-hop culture into the mainstream. I was very young when the first records came out. I can't say that I, I have a memory of, like, Rapper's Delight breaking. I was two years old, right? But yeah. But after that, I definitely, like, this sort of b-boying, breaking craze. Um, Michael Holman, I think, has, has called that the lost leaders of hip-hop mm. because this was the element that really got out there into the mainstream first and mm. really alerted a lot of people to, you know, this culture's existence. Yeah. You know, obviously Rapper's Delight was a huge record, but like breakdancing was at the Olympics, right? You know, like this was a thing. There were all these, these uh, you know, movies that break in and then all of this stuff that sort of cashed in on these things. Even, you know, Flashdance, right? Or whatever, right? Had, you know, had break. The climactic moment was breakdancing. Definitely aware of that. And then around like the mid to late 80s, there was a bunch of rap music that I first remember becoming aware of as a young kid, right? Like the Run DMC, Fat Boys, a lot of which was perfect for kids. You know, I... I yeah, Fat Boys had pretty clean lyrics, didn't they? I think I... Yeah, yeah, pretty clean lyrics, humor that I think, you know, you could feel sophisticated as a fifth grader getting or whatever, you know? Like, yeah. I say this all the time, but it is is consistently mind-blowing for me now to meet and sometimes be friends with people who are responsible for getting that music out there to the, the wider world. You know, people like uh, Bill Adler has become a friend and a mentor was like, you know, running the PR for uh, Def Jam and Rush Management at that mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. Right. And getting those artists out to places like suburban New Jersey. So, <laughs> you know, I, I always, I, it's sort of one of the, one of the odd turns my life has taken that I've gotten to speak to people I remember you saying one of the cool moments in your career was getting to go to Ice T's house and interview Ice T, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was that was definitely uh, that was definitely amazing. That was, you know, my first interaction. A few years on, um, hearing stuff like Public Enemy and NWA was completely mind blowing. Yeah. In terms of like, I just didn't have reference points. It's funny because I, hip hop was sort of part of my listening. And then in college and afterwards, it sort of ramped up from being some of it to, 
you know, most or at some points all, right? Yeah, it became mm-hmm. the zeitgeist, right? At, at some point. And also, for me, uh, as someone who was a musician, it was good to listen to music where I didn't feel like I was in that field. I didn't feel like, how are they doing this? Can I do this? Like, with other music, it'd be like, can I play that? What are they doing? Will I ever be able to play that solo? And for for hip hop, I didn't, you know, had no interest in, in making it. So it was always like, okay, this is this is the enjoyment. This is the like out of that sphere. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, you talked about the the fat boys lyrics uh, being like clean or digestible and whatnot. And then at some point the the heart of hip hop morphed into more gritty, wouldn't you say more gritty? Being that this is a mental health-themed podcast, you wrote an article of digging into how hip-hop is assuaged PTSD. Oh, you saw that piece. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Let's have you speak on it for those that haven't read your article. Rap music has always been a lot of things. I would say, you know, from its beginnings onward, there were always portrayals of poverty and police violence and all of drugs and all of the things that maybe people might associate with gangster rap. Like, you know, that has always been a piece. I think that how that came to be the overwhelmingly like commercial successful iteration of of rap is like complicated and has as much to do with the business world as the artistic one. You're right. I wrote this piece for Medium about rap and, and PTSD. What I discovered was that people in a number of different situations who had gone through traumatic things in a number of ways found that creating rap often directly about their experiences, they found it helpful. Not just the recording of the song but also once that song got out into the world hearing from an audience hearing from people who had heard it i think to to mf Grimm, who i spoke to that was like more important even in the article i think you compared iraq you juxtaposed that with like growing up in south central sure that was that was i mean that's not my idea right that's i would i would never presume to to say that but that was mers right mers is a you know so mers basically he he said oh okay he had he told a great anecdote that i believe is in the piece about how he had a, a friend of his wife's was a was a veteran and came home from combat and just couldn't get it together to do anything but sit in his house and play video games all day. And Mers thought, wow, okay, well, I know this guy and I know friends from my neighborhood who, you know, haven't been in the army but have been in street gangs or whatever. They have reacted the same way. Just kind they're, of left, they're left the same way. Like yeah. he, he yeah. saw this very real parallel. And so his song PTSD is, is in part about that. Right. He's very open about what, you know, living in a in a violent neighborhood did to that did to him in a very real sense of like he's like, well, if you approach me from behind and I don't know, yep. you know, my first instinct is to try to turn around and punch you. I'm able to rein that in a lot of times, but that's still there. Things like that, many people might not think is very real. I, I wouldn't I'm not a doctor. I wouldn't claim to know what is or what isn't uh post traumatic stress, but that sounds pretty real, right? And that's that's a thing that that lots of people are left with. Again, whether you were in combat or in traumatic incidences in in other ways. Yeah. Uh, You know, Farrah Monch certainly talks about how he was on, I think it was asthma medication for a while that had horrific side effects that left him just suicidally depressed. That was his trauma. And that was the thing he kind of had to write through. 
mm-hmm. and you know made a, a whole record in part dealing with stuff around that. So yeah, there are lots of examples of how the creation of hip hop and you know having having an audience hear your writing has helped people through trauma and the aftermath of trauma. Yeah, like it's like a the catharsis is like a two-way street basically. Mm-hmm. Another sort of impact I've found just being around music and you've been around music for a long time is there's a lot of artists that get signed, they have success and then like they just can't, you know, pick it up again. They can't find that level of success again and mm-hmm. it goes away and it's like it's very traumatizing. It'd be interesting to have your thoughts on that. I'm sure you're aware of, of some of this. That's a tough thing, especially if you have in your head that like the goal is the record deal, whatever that means, right? That it can be very tough to have that. And then, you know, most people who even get that will do okay for a couple of years and then it'll go away. Exactly. Um, it's right. Or, or even not, not do okay, but just sort of have it, have an infrastructure supporting their art for a couple of years and then it vanishes, right? This is part of the point of, you know, Steve Albini's fantastic essay from years and years ago, The Problem with Music, uh, where I'll he read out. What, what was the gist of that? The gist of it was basically like he explained what a major label deal was and how at the end of the end of, you know, three years or whatever it was, individual band members had taken home less money than if they worked at a convenience store and they were left with maybe some new gear, and that was about it. And that was like the entire ride. And they ended up, in theory, owing the record company money. Damn. Well, what about the impacts on, again, the mental health of the artists that go through that ride? Sure. I mean, if you get your big goal, right, and then it's over, certainly there's there's a lot of pressure to make it, whatever that means, by a, you know, by a young age in the music business. And if you don't, you know... What happens then? Does that reflect on your ability or, you know, how good you are or how good what you have to say is, right? There's certainly a lot of self-doubt that can creep in in terms of like, well, is the reason I don't have this huge audience, is it me? Is it the world? You know, what is it? No one will give you an answer, right? No one's going to tell you the right answer. That can lead to some pretty crippling doubt. When I worked at Interscope, Jimmy... Iveen had a funny saying uh, about because when when it goes bad, every artist wants to be like Shaggy. It wasn't me, right? <laughs> Which right. I thought has got a right. but it could have you know could have just been the the song didn't connect. It's like you know you can have all the resources in the world, but like if the song isn't connecting, what can you do? Do you know musicians like this? You know. You, do you have friends that have gone through an experience like this? Like do you know it firsthand? Sure, I know people who have had record deals and then, you know, gone independent or whatever. Some who have, who have navigated it incredibly successfully. What do you think from your vantage point and all your experience, you know, do you feel like some of the powers that be aren't going to be as necessary? Are they already not as necessary to really have a big, fruitful career? I mean, look, if I had the answers to that, I would be, you know, in a lot better <laughs> record executive. I wouldn't be a writer, you know. We're not, not going to put you in jail for wrong answers. Like, just do your yeah. best. Just do I mean, your best. Look, there, there, there are good and bad things to to where we're at now, right? Part of it is like, yes, there, there are ways of delivering your music that are far more direct than you could possibly have ever imagined. In theory anyone in the world could hear your song as soon as you upload it. But how are they going to know it's there? 
right? How are they going to know to listen to it? How are they going to find it? Like all of these things still need some kind of infrastructure, right? To drive people there. And it can be tough for artists to promote themselves, but Mm -hmm. I don't know, artists now have to, you know, be their own marketer, social media manager, you know, TikTok person, like a hundred million other things and still try to balance that with art. And I just, I don't envy anyone in that position. That seems incredibly difficult. Hope you're enjoying this episode. If you have not done so yet, please join our Connection is Magic text community. Go to the Instagram page, which is at Connection is Magic. At the top of the page, there's the word text. Click that and text the word real, R-E-A-L to that number. You'll automatically be signed up and you will get advanced drops on new episodes before they come out. Discounts on super cool Connection is Magic merchandise and special retreats we're going to be doing. You will get advanced notice on those. We're going to have some amazing guest speakers. Come get tapped into a creative community where you can find support with like-minded people. It is so hard to be on the creative path alone. Don't do it. Go sign up now. Go to the Instagram page. Text the word real to the number at the top of the page and come get yourself that support that you need. Also, if you're an artist or creative stuck in your journey, wanting to live a more deeper, fulfilled life, please do reach out for coaching. Hit up the site connectionismagic.com and send an email through and book a free 15-minute discovery call to see if I may be of help and if we could be a good fit for each other. I am right now in the second year of a master's program in clinical psychology, a training therapist as well. I'm very passionate about getting artists and creatives unstuck. There's so much that we deal with, I feel like, so many thoughts and impediments and sabotage, and there's so much that we deal with in our journeys which I have overcome myself. I was stuck for years between working in music and now doing this path. There was a lull of several years, which were super brutal. Did not know which way it was up or down. Did not know how I was going to make it to the other side. So I'm just very passionate about plugging in with creatives and trying to help get them to the fullest expression of themselves. Now let's get back to the show. It's almost like artists today are required to be more like Jay-Z, if you will. Because, you know, to me, Jay-Z is a good example where he's got both. He does Mm -hmm. the creative really well and he does the business really well. And it's not a lot of people are built like that. There are two different skill sets, right? Being one doesn't necessarily imply that you're going to be good at the other. No, in fact, I would argue typically when you're good at one, you're not as good at the other. Mm-hmm. So it's rare, I think, to have both. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. But the implications, you know, are just this ride on mental health are just really, really interesting. Artists certainly can have more than their fair share of hardships to go through even before you know, you get to public acclaim. Obviously, I saw that, you know, we'll, we'll get into this later, I'm sure, but I just uh, published a book on Takashi 69 yep. right, uh, called Dummy Boy. So, you know, the entire opening of the book is about horrific things that happened to him in his middle school years, basically. Was he abused as a kid? Um, uh, no, he, I mean, not to my knowledge, oh. at least, but... His biological father was out of his life very early, came back briefly, and then, you know, got kicked out of the house for drug use. And his stepfather was murdered right outside their home. That's a lot for anyone to go through. Yeah, I mean, talking about, again, mental health and trauma and how do you process all that at a a young age, right? At such a young age. Right. He says, at least, that he was diagnosed with with post-traumatic stress. 
uh, yeah. following that period, you know, his in his recollection, he had basically like stopped eating, stopped showering, stopped going to school, and yeah, and was diagnosed and ultimately was prescribed something for it. I don't know what, but ended up not taking it. His mother thought it would be better to rely on home remedies and and things like that, so he didn't end up using the drugs. Uh, let me ask you one kind of preface question because um, I don't sure. know if I got this in the research that I did, what what got you so initially interested in Takashi 69? 2018, you couldn't avoid him, right? Sure. And I was a music writer for Complex at the time. I'm still there. Now I'm a, a podcast writer and reporter. But trying to cover this SoundCloud wave, right, and trying to cover him was difficult because there were rumors at that time about crime he'd committed pre-fame that was pretty horrific. You don't just want to say, hey, here's a new song by this person. It's great. I had to cover him. And so one of the people at Complex said, well, who's this Treyway guy around him? Who's always around him? Who turned out to be shoddy, his sort of manager. And I was digging into that and trying to interview shoddy, reached out to his lawyers, getting a little bit of the runaround. And a few months into that, everyone got arrested. Articles turned into a podcast, uh, ultimately turned into a book. Did you ever get to sit down with uh, with Danny? I mean, Takashi? No, I've like <laughs> spoken to him a few times in, in connection with trying to set up an interview, but we've never had a on-the-record, in-depth interview. Yeah. yeah. But, but I will say that I got something even better, which was being in the courtroom when he had to tell the truth for three solid days, uh, to me, that's far better because in an interview, there's no penalty for not telling the truth. And in a lot of times in interviews, he will lie about something just enough to where calling him on it would make you look intolerant. But testifying, you know, that's the whole deal. The one thing I'll say in my observation, though, just being a hip hop fan and just observing music and to be like brutally honest, I feel like music has kind of shifted to me where it's kind of the stuff going on around the music that's more alluring than the actual music. To an extent, yeah. there's always been an element of that in the mainstream, right? In the mainstream of pop culture, of anything, right? There's, it's always like the personalities and the stories. What I will say is there is there's a far more creative and interesting rap being made than I could possibly listen to. And, you know, you just kind of have to search for it a little bit. And there are plenty of plenty of outlets to do that. Plenty it exists. Of yeah. Writers yeah. covering it. It, it absolutely exists. But like if a new rapper that we've never heard of, Sean, started dating one of the Kardashians, mm-hmm. their music might not necessarily have to be amazing or have, you know, we would probably pay it to, it would be in the press and we would be mm-hmm. aware of it. Right. So that, that definitely exists. That has happened for as long as there's been a, you know, a media paying attention to, you know, celebrity or probably as long as there have been the concept of a celebrity period. That's a great segue. I agree. And that's a great segue. So where did our fascination with celebrity come from? Do you think like, like the fact that so-and-so got like a chai latte, a certain way, like where did that come from? There are probably smart people who've done research on this. So I, you know, I can't, I can't say for sure, but like, I think there's, there's always been an idea of like, a public figure, right? Of someone who's notable for whatever reason. I think you can trace the idea of someone who's like famous for being famous back only maybe about whatever, 60, 70 years to like when you have P. 
people who could be on television a lot and they would be famous for like being wacky on talk shows rather than anything that got them there in the first place. Fame is not a meritocracy. It's not, it's not been a meritocracy going back 50, 60 years is what you're saying. A meritocracy in the sense that like there are people who are good at capturing attention in different ways. That would be my best guess is like sort of at the, at the advent of like, you know, TV uh, talk shows, interview shows that you would have like a certain class of guests who were, you know, famous for being entertaining on there. Yeah. So, you know, so you spent so much time, you know, putting together Takashi book, right? Which uh, mm-hmm. it, it dropped about a year ago. Uh, it was actually just late last year. So December, you know, late December of 2021. Okay. So just about, you know, a month and a half ago as we're talking. Oh, about, okay, cool. All right. So yeah. very recent. Now that that's buttoned up, what's next for you? Like, has any new subject captured your attention enough to want to dig in on it and pursue it? Yeah, absolutely. So I don't want to say too much because there's a lot sort of in the in the works. I am working on other long form projects, both in, in audio and in, you know, on the written word. I'll say this, that there were a lot of issues that were sort of tangential to the Takashi story mm-hmm. involving hip hop and policing and law enforcement um, that I didn't get into in covering the Takashi story. There's another thing that comes to mind. I used to wear shirts that said like HIV on them. Mm-hmm. It's not that dissimilar to me from when Trump would say the most outlandish shit like Obama was wiretapping or recently Kanye has been going on a tear, uh, you know, doing all sorts of wild shit on social media. But mm-hmm. these people, I think, are like they're geniuses with like utilizing media coverage. and It's there. Uh, certainly there's a reason Takashi rose to stardom in, you know, 2017, 2018, right? Um, when, you know, look at who the president was, look at what the climate was. Part of Takashi's appeal was that he would say outrageous and unthinkable things, right? From day one, like I said, from day one, he'd be wearing these over-the-top shirts. Uh, right, even, yeah. right. Even before he was famous, yeah. he had the shirts with with you know, all sorts of things on them, uh, including HIV and other stuff that I, you know, probably shouldn't say. Um, it was a kid-friendly podcast. <laughs> no, yeah, no. exactly, yeah. exactly. It was all about shocking people and getting attention, right? And once he became, you know, no, notable as a rapper, more specifically, it was about saying unthinkable things, right? Insulting supposedly uninsultable people, right? Who would... Who would want to be on Jay Prince's bad side, right? Jay Prince has been a mysterious, notorious figure for decades. He's the guy right? that actually mended the Drake and Kanye beef, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. What oh, absolutely. Right. Yeah. 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 So not not someone to be taken lightly. Takashi and Shadi would insult him, you know, near constantly. And in fact, committed an armed robbery of someone only loosely affiliated with him just to embarrass him. As much as we turn our noses at people that have these, you know, giant, egotistic, arrogant personalities, I think we're fascinated or drawn to them, like, simultaneously. 
I think that's so fascinating, don't you? Yeah, you, you can't look away, right? It's this was this was part of the yeah. part part of the Takashi story that even people who knew him, you know, even Shadi's entertainment lawyer would wake up every day and first thing he would do is check his phone and be like, what did these guys do? Even he was addicted to the drama, right? Yeah. Um, but it's really, yeah. it really is, you could liken it to a car accident. Like nobody likes to see a car accident, but then when you're driving by it, everybody seemingly, you know, is like, I wonder what happened or it's just. A, yeah. I mean, look, this was part of what carried me through the reporting of this story was yeah. just kind of like, wait, that really happened? Like, you know, there were, there were definitely a long time when I'd be at dinner parties and be like, so he robbed the person, but the whole time he was, his friends robbed the person, but the whole time he was sitting in the back seat filming it. And then he just sends it to a DJ, you know, or whatever, like whatever the, the example is, right? You know, I think there are larger points to be made about like the internet and the attention economy and the little hit of oxytocin you get from looking at this thing all of the time. Yeah. Right from looking yeah. or holding up my phone for for people who are listening. Yeah, um, if somebody is bored with their life, it's a great. <laughs> it's like oh shit. Yeah. Like, there are definitely points in in the story about that, but it, in another sense, it's also just a crazy tale, right? So that yeah. that was part of what drew me. Yeah, yeah. I don't know why. I just I, yeah, I just thought of like the Joker for some reason. I don't know why when I think of Takashi because you know he mm-hmm. he went through some ills and. You know, he, it's, he, it's not it's not an off comparison. The way he describes it is once his his stepfather was killed, you know, in his mind, he thought, oh, this was a good person. Yeah. And who did everything right. And he got killed. So mm-hmm. what's the benefit of being a good person? Why? Maybe I'll just be a bad person. It just seems like that that can only end one way. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it, and it did. Yeah, I mean, well, look, here's, you know, if you're doing more and more outrageous things to get attention, you know, that bottoms out at some point. For him, it bottomed out at at a federal racketeering case. You know, for for someone else, it might be something else. Um, But there's got to be an end, right? Yeah, for sure. But it's making me think of one other thing on, on the subject is like, it's like, you know, you deal with like if it's you're dealing with like the school bully, go back to middle school, you're dealing with a school bully or somebody that's acting out. It's like, you know, they're getting all this attention doing that. Sure. But are they really happy? Like, do, do you know what I'm trying to say? Like, do you think mm-hmm. Takashi was really a happy guy? I can't speak to his state of mind. Right. What I, what I can say is like there was a time, I think last spring, when he admitted he wasn't happy. And was sort of taking a little bit of a hiatus from public life. Mm-hmm. Um, so we know that. And certainly we know that, like, even at the height of his fame, he felt intense pressure around body image and, you know, was worried about, like, was constantly, you know, on, on one tour at least was, like, constantly dying, dieting, exercising, eating salads all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so feeling a lot of pressure in that sense. And I'm, I'm sure lots of other pressures as well. I mean, and also... You know, when you get all this, when you come from where he came from and you're, I wouldn't classify, well, I mean, the mainstream media wouldn't classify Takashi as a loyal guy, right? I mean, mm-hmm. that, that was just, he got grilled for not being a loyal guy. Um, but I would say then people not being loyal to him wouldn't shock me, you know? And so it's like, mm-hmm. now you have all this money and power and access and that type of thing. 
But now it's like, who are my friends? Like, who can I really trust? Yeah, on on his way up, the book Chronicles says he passed through a number of mentor figures, right, and people who would help him out. Yeah, and would always would always leave them behind. So that that's interesting. Uh, the other the other thing I definitely want to touch on too. You know, we're living in kind of a go 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 culture. What are your sort of overarching thoughts on kind of how we got here and maybe, you know, do you see it as a crisis? Um, do you see, are you more optimistic about it now that you've acknowledged it exists? I mean, look, burnout's a very serious issue. Like it, there is a, all around you are inputs telling you, you need to work harder and do more and not take time for yourself to recharge, whatever. Right. You get that in the entrepreneur hustle mentality from from that. You get it a hundred different ways. And it can be tough to feel like, you know what, I need to take time to do this. And you get it internally as well. Certainly, like, you know, what did I do for much of 2020 on weekends and evenings? I wrote a book and I'm very proud of it. I think it's a great thing. Uh, But it was tough to balance that and a full-time job. You were getting all these inputs telling you, you know, do more. You need to constantly be productive, right? What is, what is the word is more, if I had to put it in one word, right, Sean? Like, it's more. Yeah, yeah, it's more. I mean, what what is the, what is literally the measurement of success used on a, on a nationwide level? GDP. Sure. Gross domestic product, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. How much are you producing yeah. is, is the measure of success, right? Hopefully people are in secure enough positions where they can resist that to some extent and do what they need to to keep yourself healthy. But it's difficult because of, you know, precarity of, of job, precarity of economic circumstance. Like it's it's very tough. And obviously the pandemic you know, literally always being at your work desk because it's also your house yeah. hasn't made this any easier. Yeah. I mean, that cuts both ways, though, doesn't it? Because it also helped. They were, people were getting government assistance and they were realizing, hey, wait a second. Like they, they got a little perspective in that, too. I think it went both ways. I, I think that's also been great. Yeah, certainly one of the things the pandemic has inadvertently been good for has been making workers in some industries a bit more secure to the point where they they can say hey i don't want things under these conditions you know give me a better deal or give us a better deal or we're not going to do it and that obviously i've been thrilled to see that for sure I, i just feel like it's gotten worse the idea of this always be producing to me has gotten worse um it's almost like a bruise that's being pushed on and 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 i'm feeling like Maybe it's with the the uh, internet. To be honest, the advent of everything being kind of like now, 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 very everything is kind of more lightning speed than it's ever been, right? So it's like for yeah. sure, you you yeah. you no longer have an excuse not to answer that Slack message. Everyone knows you saw <laughs> it, right? You have to sort of set your own boundaries because no one's going to set them for you. Getting out from under the pressure of this thing is is incumbent upon the individual now, right? Yeah, unfortunately, there's not a lot. I mean, there should be institutional support for it. uh, But in a lot of cases, there's not. And, you know, it it is unfortunately to to some extent, you know, incumbent on the individual to say, you know what, I'm going to turn my notifications off at 5 p.m. or whatever. Right. And and try to get expectations, you know, 
around that. Amen. Amen. And, I, and, and you know, overseas, I feel like it's someplace, uh, parts of Europe, actually, it's a crime to send an email after hours or something. Have you heard about <laughs> it yet? It's like wild. But that's great. I didn't know it had made its way to the legal system. I knew that like mores are different, although I'm sure there's a, a creeping Americanism, you know, coming for for that in in different places, you know. It can be a tough thing, you know, to to ignore the notifications and not check the emails and and all the rest of it, but I'm not the best at it by any means, but it is something that's necessary. You're able to stay in the boundaries of that, Sean? You're, you're able to- uh, for, for the most part, in general, I try to have a, a more or less set time every day when I'm like, okay, I'm behind the desk and doing complex rate related reporting related stuff. And that's, you know, that's the job. Yeah, for sure. There's that extra layer though. When you're making your own sort of thing, your schedule, it's like, there's an extra layer of... If I was a freelancer, it would be a whole different ball game. You know, I, I'm very fortunate to have the, this writer, reporter, staff position. I, I yeah. don't at all take it for granted. And yeah, if I were a freelancer, there would be a, a even different level of It'd difficulty like in that I would feel like I could be making money right now, mm-hmm. this very second. Why aren't I? Exactly. And, and any other side of that is just outside of the monetary. It's like, I think if you're a freelancer or like myself, I'm an entrepreneur right now. It's like, I'm, I feel like I'm juggling. There's so many balls in the air, Sean. There's so many balls. Mm-hmm. Am I just supposed to forget about the balls that are in the air for a little while? Then what if one falls? So there's right. added pressure, I think. And, and But ultimately, like, it's, it's good to remember that if it falls, so what? Stuff can wait. If you were to go on vacation for a week, you know, the world would still be there when you got back. It's so true. And that ball that dropped, uh, the odds odds are there's going to be another ball to take its place or whatever. You right. know, that's, that's really the reality of it. So I like to bring it home with this. What was one of the biggest adversities that you faced? What or who helped you bounce back? How did it change you? A big adversity for me, going back a while, this would have been 2003, 2004. Mm-hmm. I was playing in a band. They had sort of gotten sick of Boston, decided to move to Los Angeles. My plan was to go with them. I was all set to go. And I got fired from the band. I had already given up my apartment. You know, like I was all set to go to L.A. when this happened. It was rough. I would say, you know, I spent a while like crashing with friends, you know, didn't have a steady place to live for a little while. Um, You know, had a a ton of fantastic friends who helped out with that, Um, you know, for quickly discovered that, you know, maybe a week and a half, two weeks at a time was, you know, the limits of friendship before I would drive people crazy sort of how I got over that. There was this time when I was in a car, I was in a cab with, with, you know, my, my closest friend who loved San Francisco, always talked about San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And I would always talk about New York. So this guy, Ad Frank, fantastic singer, songwriter, you know, person, he, we were talking, uh, Ruby, my, my friend and I, and he turns to us and says, why don't you two just move already? You know, you go to San Francisco, you do go to New York and essentially shut up about it. And that was really, in some ways, the, 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 really the spark. Shout out to that friend. What was his name? Yeah. Uh, Ad Frank. So, okay. Yeah. Ad, I, I, if you ever hear this. <laughs> Let's go. 
And then how did that whole experience change you? It changed a lot. Um, you know, first of all, obviously ending up in New York and, you know, moving an apartment next door to the woman who's now my wife, obviously, was the biggest thing. That's you know, awesome. her. Wow. wow. Um, my first apartment in, in New York City. So that, you know, that obviously, again, is like the, the biggest thing. But I think just also, you know, in some ways it was like you have to really trust your your instincts because the the band that I was playing with, I knew that there were some tensions there. And I knew that like a lot of the internal issues in the band were for a variety of reasons, both my fault and not focusing on me. Mm-hmm. I didn't see my, I didn't see it ending the way it did, but you know, I had thought that, you know, I could kind of see that going and I was like, well, okay, I should just trust my perception of this situation. Meaning, I just want to clarify that, Sean. So, meaning you saw some cracks in the wall with the, the inner dynamics and politics. Yeah, and and I kept and I kept plugging along rather than acknowledging, hey, maybe what's going on here? You know, is this a great bucket in which to throw my whole future? <laughs> right? Wow, is that not relatable though? I think so many people do that. You know, you could do that mm-hmm. in uh, romantic relationships, business partnerships, uh, friendships. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's across the board. We can have these feelings, but then I think, again, the fear of the unknown keeps us there. It was such a low. I think that added resiliency is a given, right, to realize mm-hmm. you can handle hard things, right? You know? mm-hmm. um, yeah. 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 That's great. Thank you for sharing that, Sean. Of course. Awesome. Well, yeah, we, of course. We, thank you. Thank you for having me. This was this was a blast. And, uh, you know, again, to your listeners, um, Complex presents Dummy Boy, Takashi 6 9 and the Nine Trade Gangster Bloods. Uh, available yeah, anywhere you get books. Can they follow you? What's your What's your handle? Yeah, so on Twitter, it's same old Sean S H A W N. Um, I know I mentioned Jay Z earlier in the in our talk, and so it's a, obviously a shout out to one of his lyrics. Yeah. Um, yeah. So same old Sean on Twitter and uh, Sean Sotero on Instagram, and yeah. Sweet. We'll hope, to, uh, hope to hear from some of your listeners. Thank you so much again for tuning in to today's episode. It really means the world to me. If you heard anything relatable that created new awareness for you, please visit our podcast on iTunes and leave a rating or review. This helps build our audience. Please comment, like, and share this episode out with your family, friends, coworkers, or anyone who you feel would benefit from the messages shared in today's episode. I'm really, really grateful for your help in spreading these messages of hope and wisdom. The world is in such great need right now, and your support helps carry the message onward to others who need it. Also, please consider becoming a monthly financial contributor to the podcast. You can do so by visiting connectionismagic.com and clicking on the Patreon link. Patreon is a third-party platform which helps support creators in exchange for exclusive content and offers. You'll be able to get discounted merchandise like comfy hoodies, t-shirts, as well as retreat discounts where we'll have special guest speakers and group activities to connect you with like-minded community members. Again, thank you so much for tuning in, and until next time, please stay connected.